Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Going Deutsch podcast, a look at the wonderful world of German football brought to you by someone who was very disappointed this week to find out that the Stanley Cup craze that's been going around on social media doesn't involve people drinking out of miniature versions of the Stanley Cup. I've seen a lot of posts about that, I assume I'm not the only one, because it's definitely not the sort of content that I normally look for, so I assume it's just gone viral. But those really overpriced thermoses, thermoses? Thermoses? Which are called Stanley Cups, and I thought it was going to be like the NHL Stanley Cup at first. I was like, wow, that's so cool, I would love to drink out of a miniature version of the Stanley Cup, but no, no, it's just, it's just a normal thermos, I mean, who cares? Why, why is this, why is this a thing that's popular on social media and not the Svita Bundesliga? I don't know, and I don't think I ever will. I guess it's somewhat surprising that I want to talk about ice hockey at all because you might know I've definitely mentioned it on one podcast or another. I don't know if I've mentioned it on this one, but I'm a fan of the Seattle Kraken. And before the All-Star break, the Kraken managed the impossible or almost impossible in the sense that they lost to the San Jose Sharks, which... (sighs) Wow... And this is not the San Jose side of like the late 2000s where they were easily one of the better sides in the NHL until it got to the playoffs where they decided suddenly that they weren't interested in winning games anymore. This is very much the San Jose side of this year who have won, what, 14 games? So they're not exactly the Boston Bruins. Still, they are only two points off a wildcard spot at the moment, so I probably shouldn't complain too much. And, of course, they've still got Oliver Bjorkstrand, Jordan Eberle, Brandon Tanev, the greatest player of all time, and, of course, the German gentleman, Philipp Grubauer. So, what more could you want in life? But anyway, welcome to the show today. I hope you're doing well. I hope this podcast finds you in good health as per usual. Remember to go to the Going Deutsch website for more about the wonderful world of German football. Lots of articles published since we last spoke, included in that my monthly awards for January, including a player winning player of the month yet again. And at this point, I I know it's starting to seem like bias, because if you've read the other Player of the Month articles, you know who it is already, because there's only one player who's won it twice, now he's won it thrice. And like, I tried to not give him the award again, but when I looked at the stats, when I broke them down, I kept coming back to the conclusion that only he could win Player of the Month. As well as the January awards, I also did a DFB Pokal review, we will be talking about the games from the Pokal early on in the podcast after a bit of transfer talk and do we have any news actually yeah i've got one news story and i'll be honest i've realized i've not checked to see if i have other news stories though with the size of the transfer talk segment it's probably better to just not (laughs) and also a transfer window roundup which we are going to be starting with the other article that i published over the last week was an article about schalke how bad is schalke's situation and i'm starting to worry that this idea of doing a weekly article focusing on a certain topic of a certain club is going to start backfiring because this is the second week in a row in which the article has immediately aged horribly by saying, oh, this team are in crisis and then they immediately go and win. Spoilers for later in the podcast, so I'm sure 
well, all of you who follow us via Sponsor League will know anyway. But yeah, go and read that on the Going Dutch website if you want to. It hasn't aged entirely horribly because obviously Schalke's situation hasn't got 100% better overnight, but still it does feel a bit weird that I've written these two articles over the last two weeks about clubs and the bad situation they find themselves in, only for them to immediately win their next game. So well done to whichever club I write about this week, if I do write about a club at all. Anyway, for the final time in the 2023-24 season, it's time to talk about some transfers. Obviously, the transfer window closed earlier this week and there were a lot of signings over the last three or four days of the window I can't remember when I posted the last transfer window update but there's a lot to talk about especially from last week as as expected panic buying sort of set in there were teams desperate to make moves knowing this was their last chance this season so let's just run through well a lot of them i think this is easily the biggest list i've had for this segment finally eintracht frankfurt have signed ugo ekitike from psg it feels like this transfer has been rumbling on since while well, the beginning of the window since before the window as well but the deal has finally been completed he's originally joined on loan from psg though frankfurt do have a purchase option of 30 million euros which would be a club record signing for them i believe the record at the moment is luka jovic for 22 million euros don't hold me to that i did check this earlier on in the week but i have since forgotten anyway that's not the point the point is ugo ekitike looks like a interesting player a promising player he had a great season at ream back in 2021-22 he moved to psg though obviously when you're competing with the likes of mbappe i think neymar and messi would have still been at the club when he signed as well that's going to be a challenge and funnily enough he didn't really play a lot in the French capital and he didn't have a lot of success either. Just four goals last season and only one appearance so far this season. So it's a move that makes sense for all parties. PSG clearly don't want TK anymore. He needs playing time. Frankfurt need another strike to go up front alongside Kleisic. It does seem like a move that makes sense for everyone Eke TK is coming to the Bundesliga with no experience, but the same cannot be said for Mo De Hood, who returns to the German top flight after just half a season with Brighton. He's moving to Stuttgart on loan. One would assume the reason is to provide cover for Angelo Stiller, maybe compete with him for the starting spot as well in Sebastian Hernes's midfield. But this is a good move. Obviously, Modehood, a very good player for many years with Borussia Mönchengladbach and Borussia Dortmund. I would say last year, not as good. And because of that, he decided to leave Borussia Dortmund and he moved to Brighton. And it hasn't worked out for him at Brighton so far this season. I wish I could say why. I can't. But... He's struggling for four-man playing time at the moment, so this move does make sense. And hopefully he'll be able to refind his form at Stuttgart as well, as they surprisingly continue to try and push for the Champions League. Bayern Munich next. Now, you might remember in the last episode, we talked about an injury to Kingsley Coman. He's going to be out for the next two months, and Bayern Munich decided that they had to act quick 
to get a replacement, and they did. And the replacement is a guy they'd already signed, Brian Zaragoza, joining from Granada. Now, you might remember that we've already mentioned him on the podcast this year because Bayern Munich did sign him a few weeks ago. Months ago, actually. Yeah, November-ish. And he was meant to originally join at the end of this season. But because of the injury to Coman, they decided they wanted to bring him in now. They've reportedly paid an extra €5 million Euros to make sure that he can join early. Which means that the total fee now for Zaragoza has gone up to €20 million. Euros. There is a lot of excitement for him in Spain. He seems like a real promising player for the future. And I'm sure he'll do well at Bayern Munich if they treat his development properly. Obviously, there's good and bad with this transfer from a Bayern Munich perspective. Because they don't have to sign a... Deadwood player. They don't sign someone who's only going to be playing for the next two months and then when Coleman comes back while they're relegated to back up and then when Zaragoza comes in in the summer, they're just not going to have any chance of playing at all. So they've prevented that from happening, which is a good move. However, obviously, it's sort of the same as what we talked about with Sasha Boy or Boye or Boy, whatever. In that the pressure on him to perform immediately might be a bit too high. I hope that's not the case and I hope that Bayern Munich treat his development properly and don't just throw him in at the deep end. But who knows, it's a an interesting signing and one that does stand to have a lot of advantages. One that is a bit more confusing... Wolfsburg have signed Kevin Behrens for two and a half million euros. Now, this is the first time that Behrens has actually moved for the fee in his entire career. And it's a really odd move. There were a lot of comparisons online to the Max Cruiser signing a few years ago for Wolfsburg. But this is weirder than that because Cruiser had played for Wolfsburg before. He was one of the best players in the Bundesliga up till that point in the season. And he had worked with Florian Koifau before at Werder Bremen. So that move did sort of make sense for, for those three reasons. With Kevin Bevans, I'm not so sure. He is an older striker, obviously he's in his 30s, so he's not going to improve. He has no connection to the club of any of the people at the club, and he hasn't even scored since August. This this move this move doesn't really make sense to me. Now, hopefully, I mean, Kevin Behrens is a likeable player. I think we all root for him, so hopefully he does refind his form in Wolfsburg. Hopefully this is the move that he, he needed at this stage of his career, but I just can't see it going to a side with an under-pressure manager. The only advantage, I would say, is that obviously Jonas Vind's form has taken a dip recently, and Vind is better playing off another striker, playing as the second striker. And with Behrens coming in, it means he can take a deeper line role as opposed to being the one and only centre forward in the side. So maybe that does allow him to flourish a bit more. But I think that's a, a big risk. And if you did want that, then surely you could assign someone better than Kevin Behrens. Wolfsburg have gone old in this transfer window. Werder Bremen doing very much the opposite with their two signings at the end of the window. Signing Skelly Alvaro from Lyon on loan with a reported purchase option of just over €6 million. Euros. Meanwhile, they've also signed, brace yourself for this, Isaac Hansen Avroen. Avroen. 
Shaw from Man United. An attacking midfielder on an undisclosed fee. Should say, by the way, Skelly Alvaro plays primarily defensive midfield. Alvaro, 21. Isaac, 19. Um, both look like promising young players. One does have significantly more first-team experience than the other, unsurprisingly. The older one, Skelly, has played eight times for Lyon so far this season, but he was very impressive last year at Sochaux in Ligue 2. Meanwhile, Isaac has only played seven times for Tromso. That was back in 2020, then joined the Manchester United youth system, and he's been playing in the under-19s and the under-23s, though he has not had a taste of the first team, which is not a surprise and also probably good because Eric Ten Hag would have destroyed his career already. But anyway, enough about Eric Ten Hag. So, yeah, two very interesting signings for Werder Bremen. Skelly, Alvaro probably could contribute immediately. Maybe don't expect Isaac Hansen, Avroen in the first team from his first game because he is very young and obviously inexperienced as well. Though I, I do think he will probably at least play a few matches in the first team at some point this season. Union Berlin have signed Jorb Vitesen from PSV Eindhoven, the striker, probably coming in to replace Kevin Behrens. It's an interesting move because, kind of like Kevin Behrens, he doesn't seem to score that much. So far this season, he's played 29 games for PSV Eindhoven in all competitions, and he has five goals to his name. Before that, he was on loan at Union Sancho while four goals in 20 games. His best season, actually, in the 2021-22 season at PSV Eindhoven, where he had nine goals in 43 games. So, hopefully, he ends up being a good player for Union Berlin. They've spent €5 million Euros on him, which obviously is a big total for a side the size of Union. It nearly fell through as well, this transfer, because... Another player at PSV, Noah Lang, was injured and it was expected that Eindhoven would want to pull the plug on this deal because suddenly Vitesse would be injury cover for Noah Lang. Isco 2.0 was the name that it was given in Germany at the time when it looked like it was going to fall through because we entered deadline day with everyone saying done deal and then suddenly it was not a done deal but then suddenly it was a done deal so it did differ from the signing of Isco. Augsburg have signed Pep Bial on loan from Olympiacos with a purchase option as well. Bial has been very good for Olympiacos over the last two seasons. He should add good depth and be able to contribute to Augsburg's attack immediately. Meanwhile, Darmstadt have signed Sebastian Polter from Schalke. Obviously, the last two years at Schalke have not been a massive success for Polter, only five goals in 34 league appearances, and obviously the latter of them all coming in the Spider Bundesliga. So it's not been a great time for him. Will he be able to do it at Darmstadt? Well, I wouldn't put money on it because I, I, I don't think this is a massive upgrade to Darmstadt's attack, to be honest. And neither do I think that Mines have massively upgraded their attack by signing Jessic Nankam on loan from Eintracht Frankfurt. Now, obviously, they had to do something because their attack is truly terrible, but whether this is the best thing to do is 
it is debatable, we'll just say. Across his 58 Bundesliga games so far in his career, he has scored just eight goals. So, not an out-and-out -out goal scorer, I think it's safe to say. Hopefully, his signing somewhat helped a joke. Anisi Rowe, Burkhart takes the pressure off him, I don't know. That's a real glass half full analysis of that signing, I think. Bochum have brought Andreas Luter back to the club. He last played for them in the 2015-16 season, but he has returned. Obviously, he was Kaiserslautern's starting goalkeeper last year, but he has not been playing this year. Only two appearances so far as Julian Kral has taken over that starting position. So, obviously, this works for them and in his place Kaiserslautern have signed Robin Himmelman the former St. Pauli goalkeeper though obviously like Luther at Bochum he is expected to be a backup. Dortmund have sold two of their young stars Julian Rykoff a football manager legend or at least a football manager legend for me because I've had him in two saves now including the Tennis Borussia Berlin save that was mentioned on the Thousand Hours podcast. Plug. There's a million in add-ons for that sale as well. And they've also sold Hendry Blank for a reported 7 million euros to FC Salzburg. These are interesting moves to me. The Blank one, it should be stressed before anything else that there is a buyback clause. But with Rykoff, there doesn't seem to be. And giving away a really promising young strike for just 2.5 million feels incredibly confusing particularly when it seems like your best striker is a Nicholas Fulkrug who's already in his 30s so it doesn't quite make sense from that perspective I thought Rykoff was going to be a really good player for Dortmund but apparently not I don't know if there's a buyback clause in his transfer as well but it's not been anything reported to suggest that unlike with Hendry Blank where there is quite a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, there's definitely a buyback clause. And when you look at, like, what Sebastian Kell has said about Hendry Blank, it sounds like there's a buyback clause as well. But who knows? I, I think the, the Rykoff signing, or sale, I should say, is, is quite odd, whereas the Blank sale does make sense because you do have that buyback clause in there. Another player leaving Borussia Dortmund, Gio Rayner, has gone to Nottingham Forest on loan. Again, like with Rykoff, there is no sort of conversation about a purchase option anywhere online. I think if this is the right move, he needed to get out of Dortmund to try and refind his form. He's not had the best season so far. And of course, with Jadon Sancho coming in over the course of this winter window, it sort of pushed him further down the... Well, if I was American like Joe Rayner, I'd say depth chart because obviously big fan of American football. It's the Super Bowl this week. I'm very excited. Anyway, so yeah, this this is a good move for both sides. Hopefully, Rayner can come back to Borussia Dortmund and really hit the ground running again next season. Just going to a few notable signings in the Fighter Bundesliga as well. Yes, even more. This list feels endless at this point. 
Fortuna Dusseldorf have signed two young players. Joshua Quarshi coming in on loan from Hoffenheim. He used to play for Dusseldorf. He was in the Youth Academy, but now coming back for a loan spell, 19 years old. Meanwhile, striker Marlon Masafa, 22, has joined from Como on loan with the club, having a purchase option as well. There could be a few complications around the Mustafa signing. According to Der Standard in Austria, I'll be honest, I don't know how reliable this story is, but it's in a national newspaper in Austria which seems to be trustworthy. Not sure though, Austrians might disagree. But apparently, Mustafa could be arrested because he failed to report for military service, which... I guess is still compulsory in Austria because apparently they live in the year 1964. I don't know. But not ideal. <laughs> apparently if he goes to Austria, he could actually be arrested for doing so. According to the article in Der Standard, quote, Marlon Mustafa was supposed to start his service at the Maria Theresa Barracks in Vienna on January 8th, but he stayed away. So... Yeah, not ideal, but he does seem like a good player, even though he's had very limited minutes for Como so far this season. Hertz Berlin have signed Bradley Ibrahim from Arsenal, and this is a very interesting move, and one that I've been meaning to ask the Arsenal supporting co-host of the Thousand Hours podcast about, but I keep forgetting... But from what I can tell, Ibrahim was viewed as a really promising young player for Arsenal, one for the future, and they've decided to let him go to Hertha Berlin. This is on a permanent transfer as well. So there, there seems to be some not very great reactions to this in North London, but for Hertha Berlin, it seems like an exceptional signing and a player who will be able to contribute obviously right now and for the future as well. So really good move for them. Schalke have signed Brandon Soppy from Atalanta on loan, which seems like a good move. He's a right wing back. He's 21 years old. He was playing for Torino in Serie A for the first half of the season, but he wasn't gaining enough game time. So Atalanta have called him back and sent him out to a second tier club, which is obviously a good move for them. Final one I want to mention because this is very long. Amar Aslan has rejoined Dino Dresden. Obviously, he was very good for Dresden in the Dritta Liga last season and had 25 goals from 36 games in midfield, which is why Magdeburg decided to buy him for €400,000 at the beginning of this season. But it hasn't worked. He hasn't been given playing time. He's been unhappy with his situation, understandably so. And a move to Dresden works out for all sides. As mentioned earlier, there's only one new story to talk about before we go into the games, and it's not one we need to go into in depth, though I think it is important to talk about the cartel office. We've been talking about them a lot recently on this podcast. Not to say that the work they do isn't important, because obviously it is. We don't want our economies being run purely by monopolies. But still, I would rather talk about them less on this podcast, to be honest. But they've removed the no single buyer rule. Now, this was 
massively important for German broadcasting in particular because this was the rule that prevented a single broadcaster from buying the rights to all the Bundesliga games. So this means that now if, say, Sky, probably Sky, or Dazen, as I call them, I refuse to call them what they want to be called, wanted to buy all the Bundesliga games, they could. And it's really interesting because... I'm going to talk about this from a UK perspective, which is probably the best move because I'm from the UK and also the UK makes up the highest single block of listeners from any country, if that makes sense. This, this podcast is more popular in the UK than it is in, in any other country. <laughs> that, that makes it sound way more popular than it actually is, but anyway... It's been noted over the last few years that Sky, BT, now TNT, and Amazon having the rights to the Premier League have massively increased prices for the consumer because if they want to watch all the Premier League games, while they can't because of the stupid 3 o'clock blackout, but if they want to watch all the Premier League games that are actually on TV, they have to have three different subscriptions. And it's similar in Germany with Sky Sport and... Dazen having the rights, it makes it more expensive for the consumer. So, to be honest, I don't think this is a bad move. Obviously, let's just say theoretically that Sky gets the rights to all Bundesliga games. I don't think their prices will double overnight. So, overall, the consumer will make a, a net save. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, a perfectly good thing. So, with all of the transfers and news out of the way, it's time to go into the matches over the last week. About 24 minutes into the podcast. Don't worry, from next week on, we will not be having 20-odd minutes worth of discussion before actually talking about football matches on this podcast that is here to talk about football matches. But let's very quickly start off with the DFB Pakal and the two games that took place last week. And unfortunately, we have to start off with St. Pauli 2, Fortuna Dusseldorf 2, Fortuna Dusseldorf going through 4-3 on penalties. <sighs> So, so this game wasn't great, obviously. I can't complain too much because obviously St. Pauli haven't lost up until this game this season. So if I did complain overly, then it might be seen as a bit spoiled. But I do have to talk about this game and particularly I want to talk about the weird decisions that Fabian Herzler made before the game. I love Fabian Herzler. He's a great manager and he is going to be a great manager for a very long time. But in this game, oh boy, does it feel like he boo-booed from a tactical perspective. I think the fact that this game came so quickly after the Fighter Bundesliga game, which of course was on the weekend, this game on the Tuesday, it sort of made Fabian Herzler maybe do the Pep Guardiola thing of overthinking it and trying to mix things up unnecessarily. Dusseldorf only made one change to their starting lineup from the game of the weekend and St. Pauli made three and the three changes didn't really make sense. One of them was inevitable, we'll get on to that later on. But the other two, he brought in Lars Ritzker 
to play at left wing back, which meant that Philip Troy moved to right wing back, which is a position that he cannot play and proved in this game. He then also brought Etienne Amanido on up front. He replaced Elias Saad, and it says a lot about both of those decisions that he reversed them at half time because they simply were not working. So, they were bad, but the worst decision was the automatic one, the one he was always going to make, which is that Sasha Bouchet was the starting goalkeeper, obviously replacing Nikola Vasily. And this didn't work because over the course of the 90 minutes and extra time, Bouchet would make two critical mistakes that would both directly lead to goals for Fortuna Dusseldorf. The first one giving away a penalty really clumsily as well. That penalty scored by Vincent Vermey. And then later on in the match, he spilled a really simple shot into the path of Altenaka. That was in first half extra time. Sampaoli did have their moments. They were the better side through most of the game. And they did get a penalty on the hour mark. Altenaka, the guy who would score later on in the game, brought down Philip Troy, who by this point had gone back to left wing back. Saliakas came on for Ritzka at the half-time break, and then those two were playing on their normal sides of the pitch. Anyway, Marcel Hartl would score the penalty. He scored a penalty of the weekend against Dusseldorf. He then scored a penalty in the Pokal as well. And then, remarkably, in the 121st minute, Carlo Bacalfa, of all players, would score an equaliser. And by this point, Fabian Herzler had been sent off. He'd been complaining at the referee, Sasha Stegman, through a lot of this game and by the way I know this is going to sound like sour grapes I know this is going to sound like I'm just saying this because St. Pauli lost but Stegman had a bad game he was he was really bad and it wasn't in the sense of him being biased for one side over the other he, he just was bad and I was going to say that even if St. Pauli had won I don't actually think St. Pauli should have been given a penalty in the 60th minute I thought it was just it wasn't enough contact to justify a penalty, but that's just me. I did think Stegman had a bad game overall. Anyway, so Herzler had been complaining at Stegman all day. He'd got a red card and he stood in the end with the ultras, so which was absolutely fantastic. And it showed the broadcast him celebrating with the ultras when the second went in in the 121st minute. That took it to a penalty shootout and Boucher did redeem himself. So I'm not going to criticise him too much, though it wouldn't have gone to a penalty shootout if Malfazili was playing a goal, for example. But he did save a penalty from Christoph Daffner. However, after that, St. Pauli would miss two penalties. The first missed by Movides, and he, I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but he has done absolutely nothing since signing for St. Pauli. He has been a truly dreadful signing. This would have been the first time he'd been able to get a ball in the back of the net, and he didn't. So, yeah, the last year not been a success for him. And I feel like I'm already at the stage that Paul Dardai was with Mazian Maulida when he was just saying, he just needs to leave. Please leave to anywhere. But the second penalty was missed by, and it almost feels like a sick joke, 
Marcel Hartl, who had scored a penalty in the league game against Dusseldorf and had scored a penalty earlier that night as well, but then stepped up to the spot in the shootout and he had a really weak penalty saved by Kastenmeier, but he was given a lifeline because Kastenmeier had both feet offline, that meant a retake, and he missed that one as well. Well, both of them were saved, but they were both really weak penalties that most keepers who guessed the right way would be able to save. So, yeah, I, I remember seeing him walk up and I just thought, oh God, if he misses, it just it's going to feel like some, some twisted joke, this, because he scored the two penalties already and it did happen as well. So, not the best game for... Me, all for St. Pauli. To be honest, Dusseldorf did deserve to win. They didn't have the majority possession or chances, but oftentimes, and I'm going to bring this back to American football, and I'm not just doing this because of the Super Bowl later this week, which I am very excited for, but oftentimes it feels like in American football, he who wins the turnover battle wins the game, and in association football, he who makes the fewest mistakes often wins the game. And that was the case here for Dusseldorf. They made the fewest mistakes in the game and therefore they did deserve to win. The other game was less close. Het Berlin won Kaiserslautern 3. This was quite the shock to be honest because Kaiserslautern obviously they had that big win of the weekend against Schalke. But going away to the Olympia Stadium... Felt like it was going to be tough, but they did blow Hertzbellin out of the water. It was already game over by the time it was 3-0. Jan Alvedi scoring the first in the fifth minute. Richmond Tashi scoring in the 38th minute. And Philip Kaloch scoring in the 69th minute. It's his first goal for the club since joining on loan from Banik Ostrava. Fabian Reza did come on later in the game. Actually came on at half-time. And he did score in the 91st minute, but it was too little too late. I don't know why Fabian Reza wasn't playing, and I've not been able to find a solid answer on it. I assume he had a knock or something. He wasn't at 100% because considering his exploits in the last round against HSV, you'd think that Reza would have earned a starting spot for that alone, but maybe not. I, I do think it was probably more a knock than anything else, though. But yeah, Kai Slauten absolutely did deserve to go through. They were the better side. Anyway, let's now slide our way into the Bundesliga. And I think in the 73 episodes that I've done of this podcast, this is maybe the weirdest running order I've ever done. Maybe that's because I didn't rate the supposed big games of the weekend. Maybe it's because... I just objectively do not want to talk about the Bayern Munich Borussia Gladbach game. I don't know, but it does feel like the running order this week is quite weird. And a game that I really didn't expect to lead the running order is Köln against Frankfurt. But that is the game that leads the running order. I have been keeping track of the teams that have led the running order over the course of the season and before this week 16 of the 18 Bundesliga sides had been mentioned first in the running order at some point so I do spread it around but Köln were one of the two sides who hadn't obviously that changing this episode the only side now who haven't been top of running order this season is Mainz so hopefully they'll actually have a good game and everything at some point 
But this game was very surprising. Köln winning 2-0 against Eintracht Frankfurt. And to be honest, as the philosopher Ron Burgundy once said, wow, that escalated quickly. Obviously, Timo Schultz entered this game looking for his first win as Köln manager in four attempts. It was 0-0 at half-time breaking. To be honest, it had felt quite weird up until that point because Köln were the side with all the attacking impetus. They did struggle to score because Köln. Whilst Frankfurt were mostly passive through the first half. And to be honest, that feels like the wrong way round because when you look at the two sides... Coming into the game, you look at how they normally play and what you'd expect them to do. You'd feel like Frankfurt would be the side really wanting to take the game to Köln. Maybe it is just me who thinks this. But I thought that Frankfurt would be wanting to take the game to Köln. And Köln would be defensive and looking for that lucky break. But that didn't happen. Frankfurt did look a lot better at the beginning of the second half, Marvin Schwaber was forced into a great save from a Faris Chayibi free kick. And then Chayibi would have the ball in the back of the net as well, but that was disallowed for offside. The game did change entirely though in the 66th minute. Cohn had been the better side from about the hour mark on, but then Niels and Kunku was sent off for a second bookable offence. To be honest, I don't think it was a yellow card. I think it should have been a straight red. Nkunku deliberately grabbed the legs of Ali Du whilst he was whilst Nkunku was on the ground. Grabbed the legs of Ali Du and then and this is maybe the most stunning part of all of it, he had the absolute audacity to claim to the referee that he didn't touch him despite bear hugging his legs. I mean Sometimes I admire the bravery of these players to genuinely try and pretend that they didn't touch the other player. But, like, Niels, if you're listening to this podcast, and I, if you are, you, you are aware that Bundesliga games are recorded, right? And that we can all see and there are replays and stuff like that. The, the idea that he had any right to protest about that decision is, is truly shocking to me. And yeah, to be honest, I am of the opinion that when a player deliberately brings another player to the ground, that was their only intention, it should be a straight red card. And I know that for a lot of people that would be a, a really strong stance because that would sort of eliminate the tactical foul and stuff like that. Don't care. I'd do it. But anyway, that aside, it was definitely a yellow card at the very least. I think it should have been a straight red. Faride Alidu would get his revenge for that as well when he scored from the following free kick routine. Jan Fielman would then make it 2-0 in the 80th minute. That goal was started when Havoye Smolcic, whilst under absolutely no pressure whatsoever, just passed it to Dejan Lubacic for no reason, and Lubacic ran through and slotted it to Thielman, who was able to score. Tutor was then sent off for an elbow on Julian Chabot. I'm going to sit on the fence with this one, because whilst it wasn't the best decision for Tutor to put his arms up like he did, I'm not sure if he did it on purpose. It was given a second yellow card. If it was a deliberate elbow, you'd think it'd be a straight red card. 
But yeah, I'm not going to say it was on purpose, but it was. It wasn't the best thinking, we'll just say. So, Cone getting their first win in seven games there, up to 16th, and obviously something to be optimistic about. Cone showed a lot of fighting spirit in this game. They showed how they can win games of the future. Obviously, it did help that they had the man advantage when they scored both of their goals and later the two-man advantage as well. But this, this was a very promising performance from Timo Schultz's side. I think before the red card, they were probably the better side overall anyway. So, yeah, a lot to like from this game and maybe a building block for a better rest of the season. I think none of us are under any illusions when it comes to the challenge that Timo Schultz is facing at Köln with the transfer ban. Obviously, it's now not relevant, but... Cone's squad not the best in the league and they didn't have any options to improve it in the winter window so he, he does have a lot of challenges still at Cone but this is a step in the right direction. Meanwhile for Frankfurt they have to question why this game went so wrong and it went wrong in quite a few different ways. Why were they so passive to start off the game? Why did they concede stupid red cards? Why did their new exciting attack force find themselves unable to do anything through this game? Sasha Kalizic started up front and no, he he wasn't good. Ugo Ekitike came on midway through the match. John Bahoya came on as well. Donny van der Beek didn't play at all, and actually that brings me on to something that is worth mentioning, which is that he's also not in the Europa Conference League squad. Why? You've just loaned this player, you've got a option to buy him for, I think it was 14 million euros. Why, why are you not including him in your Europa Conference League squad? That doesn't say a lot about the confidence that Dino Topmoller has in him. So, that's that's very concerning. And there's a lot to be concerned about in that regard. They are still sick though on 31 points. So, they have lost vital ground to Leipzig in 5th. Freiburg 1, Stuttgart 3. I, I think I picked this as my game of the weekend. Honestly, can't remember already. But this game was over really before it had started. Dennis Undav would score his 13th of the season in the third minute. Before, in the seventh minute, he would play in Chris Furyk for the second. So, seven minutes in, Stuttgart already 2-0 up. Obviously, that was a good start. It got even better, though. Because, well, from a Stuttgart perspective, because Merlin Roll would get sent off for a bad challenge in the 18th minute. It was the correct call, and it felt like the game was completely over right then and there. Christian Strike was doing a lot of complaining about this red card, and I have no idea why, because it was most certainly a red card. Whilst we're on the topic, I do want to ask a random question that no one's really going to care about, but I want to ask it anyway, and it's my podcast. Is Merlin Roll deliberately copying the style of Brendan Aronson? Not in the sense that he got sent off, but like he, he has the, the shirt with the body armor underneath and he had his hair slicked back in much the same way. I was like, I, I genuinely, when I first saw the replay, I was like, 
Has Brandon Avinson that? When did he join Freiburg? When I was Merlin Roll. <laughs> yeah, they, they honestly look, he looks more like Brendan Avinson's brother than Brendan Avinson's actual brother looks like Brendan Avinson's brother. That might not be entirely true, but, you know, it's a close resemblance. Anyway, so I wrote in my notes at that point, Merlin Vol red card, game over. That was tested in the 11th minute of first half at a time when Freiburg would get a goal back. Lucas Kubler heading in a Vincenzo Grifo corner. And it took until the 74th minute for Stuttgart to get their two-goal lead back. There were a lot of points in that second half where Freiburg were really pushing for a potential equaliser, but Maxi Mittelstedt would chip Noah Atabolu to make it 3-1, which was the final score. Fun fact, Stuttgart have already scored more goals this season than they did in the entirety of last season, which really shows how great Bruno Labbadia was as a manager. I shouldn't blame it all on him, of course, but yeah, it, it does show the progress that the club have made under Sebastian Hernes so far this season. I think there is a lot to be said for Freiburg's determination in how they tried to come back into this game, but Stuttgart did do enough to hold on to a deserved three points. And by the way, we should mention before we move on, Freiburg captain Christian Gunter came back midway through this game after five months out and he received a very warm applause from the Europa Park Stadion as one would expect. Perhaps the weirdest choice that I have made in this running order is with the third game, Heidenheim nil, Borussia Dortmund nil. Yeah, I put this third in the running order. And if you are the sort of person who doesn't watch these fight Bundesliga and this was the first game you watched on Friday, then this was the best way to start your weekend. I mean, who doesn't love a game where neither side attack well? Heidenheim were easily the better side, though, through, well... All of the game, to be honest. They had a few guilt-edged chances, but they really should have taken. Especially one quite early on. It would have been in the opening 15 minutes when Salia Urchan wanted to just remind us all how great Dortmund's defence is by just passing the ball to a wide-open Tim Kleindienst in the box. And obviously, you'd expect Kleindienst to score that 10 times out of 10, Kerbal was really out of position, and when I say Kerbal, I of course mean Alexander Mayer, sorry, force of habit. Mayer was out of position, he was standing on the sort of far left for goal. Kleindienst, all he had to do was slot it into the bottom corner. If he'd just slotted it into the bottom corner, there'd have been no chance for Mayer to get to that, and yet he somehow managed to hit it wide of goal, which, given the circumstances, was probably harder to do. So that was that was terrible, but apart from that, Heidenheim were the better side through this entire game, and they were the ones who were, well, probably most likely to score. The only time the ball was actually in the back of the net, it was for Borussia Dortmund. Daniel Marlin thought he had scored, but he was marginally offside on a through ball, and the goal was disallowed. So maybe you can say that that was the closest a side got to scoring, but overall, Heidenheim were the better side. This is what I talk about when I express caution with Borussia Dortmund. Obviously, they'd won their first three games in 2024. The commentator on the Bundesliga World Feed, talking about this game in the opening stages, said, while they won their opening 10 games this time last year, they've made slow starts in the Hinrunde, but when the Vukrunde comes around, they always fight back. But, look, I get it. They'd won three games in a row. 
but that was against Darmstadt, Köln and Bochum. So that doesn't really mean too much. And in those games, they still weren't putting in particularly inspiring performances, despite the fact that one of them was a 3-0 win against Darmstadt and the other one of the others was a 4-0 win against Köln. They, their performances weren't good enough and it felt like when they came up against a harder opponent, they would struggle. And of course, Heidenheim have been playing surprisingly well so far this season because of other results. They have dropped to 10th in the Bundesliga table. But still, they have been a good side this year and they, they showed that they were able to sort of neutralize the Dortmund game plan another thing to mention as well Dortmund absolutely cannot cope against a high press they they just can't do it they fall apart every time Heidenheim were playing a high press through parts of this game and Dortmund just fell apart that's what led to the Erschan mistake which really should have led to a goal from Tim Kleindienst so yeah, this is why I would not put any stock in Borussia Dortmund at the moment. This is why not to do with like the stock market, which I know Dortmund have floated on. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't put any faith in Dortmund to necessarily do anything this season. Obviously, because of other results, they are still in the Champions League places, but only now by one point. And I would not say that Champions League qualification is even close to guaranteed for the side because they always have the ability to put in performances like this. These performances where they have been underwhelming, where they have been disappointing, have been the norm so far this season. Meanwhile, for Heidenheim, yes, they should have won. And yes, they will be very disappointed about some of the chances that they missed because if they had won this game, it would have undoubtedly been the biggest result well, in the club's history, to be honest, you could argue that and the 3-2 win away at Jan Regensburg last year, which obviously secured them promotion to the Bundesliga. But a win at home against Dortmund, that's the sort of thing that lives in the memory for fans of clubs like these. And yeah, it would have been lovely. But still, undefeated in seven Bundesliga matches, they are looking really good at the moment and they're sat in 10th. Wolfsburg 2, Hoffenheim 2, and okay, I was a bit confused by this, so Wolfsburg haven't won since mid-December, and they haven't been playing particularly well, whilst Hoffenheim haven't won since early December, and they haven't been playing well, so why did the Bundesliga decide to schedule this game for Sunday, because obviously if it's one of the Sunday games and it's by itself, and the eyes of all of Germany probably are watching this game, actually, considering it was Wolfsburg and Hoffenheim, almost certainly not. So, like, why was this in that spot? Because I don't think it deserved it. Still, four goals in this game, so it was a, a decent match overall. Lovro Mayer was the star for Wolfsburg. After coming on in the 55th minute, he would peg Hoffenheim back twice. First with a good finish into the bottom corner, and then from the spot after being pushed by Stanley and Soki in the box, as just said, though, Hoffenheim had taken the lead twice in the game, and they were probably slightly the better side overall. Maxi Bayer had given them the lead early on with a good solo effort, and then Grisha Permel would see a deflected shot go in for Maxi Bayer, by the way. It's his eighth goal of the season, and obviously that's fantastic news. That's something we all support and we all love, and I'm definitely not saying that because I have him in my fantasy Bundesliga side. But anyway... 
I say Hoffenheim were slightly better. I don't want that to be mistaken for Hoffenheim were good because I don't think Hoffenheim had a really good performance in this game and Wolfsburg were arguably slightly worse. For me, right now, Wolfsburg, obviously, Niko Kovac under a lot of pressure. The hole is not great for some of its parts because they do have a lot of good players in that side. But going forward in particular, it doesn't feel like they have a coherent plan which is going to lead them to success. I think I saw somebody online say that they look like they were playing without confidence and I think that's the best way to put it. They just sort of looked really unconfident going up the pitch and obviously this is concerning for the Wolfsburg hive-ups who have to decide whether they want to keep Niko Kovac in charge. I said in last week's episode that this could be a win or get sacked sort of situation for him that was based on the rumours coming out around the club not based on my own opinion but the managing director Marcel Schaefer has said quote Nico remains a coach and will be on the training pitch tomorrow a lot is made of the dreaded vote of confidence that managers sometimes receive this feels worse than that because the managing director is only willing to confirm your position at the club until tomorrow so yay fantastic for Nico Kovac he was asked about potential successors to Kovac and he refused to give any answers, which obviously. But yeah, it's not great for Niko Kovac at the moment. If he does manage to stay on till next week, he really does need a big win, particularly because they're taking on Union Berlin, who obviously are a relegation contender and you would think significantly worse than Wolfsburg. So if he doesn't win there then I, I do think he has run out of excuses at that point because whilst Hoffenheim are on a bad run of form at least they're still contenders for Europe at least they're still you know a, a side who you'd think of as one of the better sides in the league whereas Union Berlin not so much this season by the way I do want to say Wolfsburg having drawn their fourth game in a row now really should in the words of Alex Tan Brown take up an art class because they're very good at drawing. Darmstadt nil by Leverkusen 2 and it was Nathan Teller time as Nathan Teller would score two goals in this game a header in the first half and a great smash into the top corner in the second half he's now scored three in his last three games and this was his first start in the league as well and it's a great sign that Chabi Alonso sort of knows the development of his players he knows the right time to bring them into the starting lineup and how to mesh them in with the rest of the squad and I think the development of Nathan Teller over the season from a fairly unused player to a, a really good player over these last few games is a great sign of that. Obviously it's not a game that many people are going to look back on too fondly and that's why this review of this game is going to be so short but obviously as well it is going to be a game that Nathan Teller looks back on very fondly and one of the best players in the Bundesliga this week. Before we move on and by the way there's nothing interesting to talk about when it comes to Darmstadt in this game. I'm sorry Darmstadt fans, but there just isn't. You were always going to lose this game. And it is now 13 without a win for the side in the Bundesliga. But 
Before we move on, something a bit more interesting, which is that police in Thailand have urged people to not fall for a scam concerning Chabi Alonso, which says that Chabi Alonso is trying to become the Liverpool manager, but he can't afford the airfare, and therefore he, he needs the person on the other end of the text message to send the money for him to get the plane which i know that the bundesliga might not be the most followed league in thailand but he is the manager of a top club in europe he can probably afford his own plane ticket now i have seen conflicting reports about this which is why i was sort of not wanting to bring it up because some people have said oh wow this is clearly a joke other people have said no no people are being scammed like this and people do get scammed like this and it's not specific to any country or continent or region people just do get scammed like this so it's not a massively out there statement probably a bit suspicious that the message is also written in fluent thai so that should be a warning but yeah just general advice for life. Don't trust messages that just say that they're the person without there being any evidence, even if they come from a trusted source. And by the way, I would just like to thank Chabi Alonso for writing such a nice glowing review, which you can read in the description to this podcast. And a certain guest also wrote part of that review too. And I'm really grateful that they did so. And it is entirely them, 100%, definitely. Anyway, moving on. Bayern Munich 3, Gladbach 1. We should probably mention this here because... We've just talked about Bayer Leverkusen and of course that is the title race. The gap is still two points between the two sides. For a large part of the game though, it did look like Gladbach could get another win against their eternal foe. The side that Bayern Munich most dread playing in the Bundesliga, I dare say, because of some of the notable wins over the last few years. Gladbach took the lead in this game in the 35th minute. A horrible attempt to play out of the back led to Jan Alvedi stealing the ball. He would then play a 1-2 with Jordan before slotting into the bottom corner. And at that point, I thought, wow, God, can you imagine if, if Bayern lose this? Leverkusen were already beating Darmstadt at this point. I was like, oh, this could be absolutely perfect. This could be the best weekend. But unfortunately, reality had to set in. Alexander Pavlovich would score... I think just before the end of the first half. And then in the second half, Harry Kane would get his 24th goal of the season and Delict would score late on as well. So Bayern won, they deserve to win this game. Much sadness ensuing for the rest of us. Before we move on to the next game, I do want to come back to the Thomas Tuchel debate from last week. I said a lot about this last week, but I will be honest, I may have not read what Didier Man actually said. Now, for the record, I still stand by pretty much everything I said in last week's episode. The idea that there is a conspiracy against Bayern Munich in the media is, of course, stupid and when you look at Thomas Tuchel's comments that he made last week, and in particular the context in which he said them, the timing, coming so close following Xavi's announcement that he was going to leave Barcelona at the end of the season, there is a reasonably high chance that Tuchel's comments were driven by a desire to take the Barcelona job. Now, to go any further than that, I think would be 
incorrect. And it turns out this is what Diddy Haman had actually done. He said, quote, he sits down and talks about Xavi, about the successor, and that he would like to train in Barcelona or Spain. That's a disgrace. He's a very intelligent man. Something like that doesn't just slip out of his mouth. Only he has to know one thing. If you are an employee of Bayern, taking on the management, that is rarely a good idea. Now, for what it's worth, whilst you can say there is probability, and whilst you can say that the timing is most certainly suspicious, which it 100% is, what you cannot say is that Tuchel directly mentioned Xavi or Barcelona because he just objectively didn't. He said that he wanted to work in Spain in the future but at no point did he actually mention Barcelona and like I said in the last episode I don't think that when he talked about working in Spain he had Rayo Vallecano in mind or Cadiz or someone like that. I, I'm pretty sure he did have the Barcelona job in mind, but he, he never actually mentioned Barcelona. He never mentioned Xavi, and to say he did is just flat out incorrect. So I do agree with Haman on the idea that Tuchel obviously isn't stupid and that he would understand the context in which he is making those comments. He would have known at that point that Xavi had announced that he was stepping down from Barcelona at the end of the year, and he would know that any comment about managing in Spanish football and a desire to manage in Spanish football would be viewed as him wanting to take the Barcelona job, because that is the most normal reading of that statement. But yeah, Diddy Man was definitely incorrect in a lot of what he said, though I still believe that Bayern Munich's reaction to this is just absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, moving on. Mainz nil, Werder Bremen won, and every year in the town of, yes, they really did call it that, Gobbler's Knob, mm-hmm, the Groundhog Punxsutawney Phil makes his annual prediction, and it is often said in legend that if he sees his shadow, then it's six more weeks of terrible minds attacking. And he saw his shadow this year, so yay. By the way, just in case you want to know, he didn't see his shadow, so it's six more weeks of spring, apparently. And that's really important to know if you are the sort of person who gets their weather forecasts off rodents. But anyway, let's talk about this game instead. There was only one goal it came after two minutes, a deflected Mainz clearance perfectly landing at the feet of Marvin Duksch for his 10th of the season. After that, Werder sat back and created few chances and once again, Mainz created lots of chances and managed to take absolutely none of them. The only moment where I can remember them having an actual good chance that could have gone in was when debutant Jessic Nankam forced a great save out of Zetera in the Verde goals. But to be honest, apart from that, Mines really didn't challenge. Another player was making their debut in this game, who we haven't actually talked about, Nadi Mamiri, who was joined from Bayer Leverkusen. He looks like he's already frustrated with playing for Mines because a number of times that Das Actuality Sports Studio showed a replay of Amiri just like slamming his head against the turf or or like gritting his teeth or something like that was it was at least six times through the review of this game. So absolutely fantastic for Mines of course. The only other notable moment was the final chance of a game 
four minds when Robin Zentner went up and was the only one actually creating chances and trying to shoot, which really does speak to how minds the season has gone so far. When your goalkeeper is your biggest attacking threat on your final chance to score in a game, that's that's not good. Minds are, you know, it is like Groundhog Day. I feel like I'm saying this every single week because I am saying it every single week. Minds created tons of chances, couldn't score any of them, and they're still stuck in the same spot. They're now winless in nine games, and until they can find a player who can actually put the ball thing in the net thing, then they they really have no chance of winning any games. Obviously worth mentioning as well at this point that because of Kiln's two goals against Eintracht Frankfurt, Mainz are now the league's joint lowest scorers, which to be honest, it's a miracle that they weren't there before. For Werder Bremen, ninth in the league, three straight wins, there is nothing to complain about for Ole Werner and company, they are playing exceptionally well. Bochum won, Augsburg won, it looked like for the longest time a Moritz Brzezinski bicycle kick inside the box was going to be the difference between the two sides, but in the 90th minute, Augsburg were given a penalty for handball against Ivan Odette. It seemed harsh at first, but it was the correct call. The penalty was scored by Ermedin Demirovic. It was a gutting blow for Bochum, but they are now undefeated in seven games, and it probably was the correct result overall, despite the pain that Thomas Lech showed at the end of the game. Final game to mention then, Leipzig 2 and Neon Berlin 0. And unlike last year, this game was not expected to be a close matchup, and it wasn't either. Lois Appender scoring the first goal for Leipzig. It's his fourth goal in five games, and he has 14 in the Bundesliga so far in his 20 matches played. So, absolutely incredible start to his time at Leipzig. Benjamin Sesko has not been as good so far, but he did score again in this game. He has goals in back-to-back games now, and he scored five in the Bundesliga so far this season, so he is improving. Union would finish the game with 10 men. Christopher Trimmel sent off in the 73rd minute for a not-great challenge on David Vaum. I don't think it was, like, an obvious red card. Like, a really obvious red card, but I think... The referee was more than entitled to give it. I think I would have probably given a red card as well. It didn't look like it from the broadcast angle, from the close-up. Yeah, I would probably say it was a red card as well. So, Leipzig winning that game and really needing to win that game as well after a really poor run of results. They are in fifth place, only one point behind Borussia Dortmund and five points clear now of Eintracht Frankfurt. Speaking of, let's have a look at the Bundesliga table after 20 matches. The gap at the top remains the same. Bayer Leverkusen on 52 points, Bayern Munich on 50 points. It's then a 10-point drop down to Stuttgart in third on 40. As mentioned, Dortmund 4, 37. Leipzig 5th on 36 points and Frankfurt 6th on 31. At the wrong end of the table, Darmstadt still bottom. They are on 11 points, same number of points that Mainz have. Meanwhile, Köln have moved clear of the bottom two. They're on 15 points after four in their last two games. And they close the gap to 15th place, Union Berlin, to just two points. Though remember, Union Berlin do have a game in hand. Then it's a jump up to Bochum and Borussia Mönchengladbach, who both have 21 points. They're in 14th and 13th, respectively. Player of the week in the Bundesliga. I really, truly wanted to give this to Nathan Teller. And I could have done, because it's my podcast. I can do what I want. But 
I think I would be wrong to give it to him over a certain other player who contributed to all three of his side's goals in a win against one of the better sides in the league, a side who sits in seventh at the moment. So, remarkably, for the second week in a row and for the third time this season, my player of the week is Dennis Undav of Stuttgart. In the process, he becomes just the second player to win the Player of the Week award for the third time this season alongside Harry Kane. And I think of Dennis Undav and Harry Kane as being about the same quality of striker. Please, Stuttgart, please sign him. Don't let him go back to Brighton. Please just keep him with Stuttgart in the Bundesliga. Okay, let's put our cape on, grab our sword and crown and get on our horse as we enter the stadium that is the Sviter Bundesliga. That is going to be a really weird segue for anyone who didn't see that. But this week, Arturo Vidal, the former Bayern Munich and Bayer Leverkusen player, returned to his childhood club Colo Colo in Chile. Obviously, one of the richest clubs in the world, at least on the Thousand Hours podcast. Plug. And he... When he returned to the club, he entered the stadium and instead of doing what normal players do when they first join a club, just walking out, holding the shirt up or whatever, he entered the stadium wearing a cape and crown, holding a sword and riding on a horse. And it was absolutely fantastic. If you've not seen the video of him returning to Colo Colo, I highly recommend going and watching it. But instead of talking about Chilean football, let's talk about the second tier in Germany. Of course, there's only one game we can start off with. The top of the table clash between St. Pauli and Greuther Firth. And obviously St. Pauli entering the game first in the league. Greuther Firth, well they entered the game third in the league, but they entered the weekend in second. So the top two going up against each other and it was St. Pauli who would get a vital win in this game. St. Pauli 3, Greuther Firth 2. It was a first half full of errors. St. Pauli raced into a two-goal lead with both coming in the space of three minutes around the half-hour mark. The first of those two goals coming when Jonas Erbig, who had been playing really well up until that point, spilled a shot into the path of Elias Saad. He was able to just tap in from that. And then the second coming when Dapo Afalayan would have a shot deflected by Gideon Young into the net. So two goals where we'll say the Greuther Firth defending was not optimal, where there were mistakes made. Obviously, you feel bad for Gideon Young with a deflection looping over his keeper. Nothing Erbig could have done about that one, though Erbig, for the quality he has as a keeper, should have saved that first shot a bit easier as well. So 2-0 at that point, but just before the half-time break, Firth would have a goal back. Armindo Sieb catching Nicola Vasili out of position to fire in. It was a very powerful shot, though. I think if Vasili had been a bit more central in the goal, he would have probably been able to save it. And it was 2-1 at the half-time break. St. Pauli were the better side of that first half, and they were the better side to start the second half as well. But when the fourth goal of the game came, it was for Greuterfirth against the run of play. Simon Astor, it was the best goal of the game, though it did at that point, and I know I'm a biased St. Pauli fan, but it did at that point feel like Greuterfirth didn't deserve to be level. However, after that, Greuterfirth very quickly did become the better side. They were really pressuring St. Pauli. 
the hosts really struggling to get out of their own half. It looked like Firth were the side who were most likely to get a winner. But just before the 81st minute, the sun came out. It had been raining through a lot of the game in Hamburg. I know, Hamburg raining, shocking. But it had been raining quite a lot. The rain stopped and the sun came out and it was right in Jonas Erbig's face. I, I was watching this and I was looking at him going, he needs to get a baseball cap on or something because that sun has just come so fast, so sudden, it's right in his eye line. He has to surely wear something. I don't want to say that that caused what came next, but it probably didn't help. In the 81st minute, the fifth and final goal of the game would come, and it would be for St. Pauli, and this was arguably also kind of against the run of play. One player who I don't think we've talked about on the podcast so far since he joined St. Pauli, Alyoska Kemline. Probably pronounced his name wrong, but he's joined on loan from Union Berlin, 19 years old, and he's kind of there to replace Jackson Irvin, who of course is at the Asian Cup with Australia. And he's been doing well so far. He's been playing quite well, but this game was his first absolutely amazing performance for St. Paul, where he was arguably the man of the match. He assisted at the Lions goal in the first half, and in the second half, he played an amazing through ball for Elias Saad, and his shot, Jonas Erbig did get some fingertips to it, but not enough as it would find the net. Like I said, the sun wasn't helping Erbig at this point, and to be honest, it went away again, within like a minute of that goal going in, but whilst it wasn't responsible, it probably didn't help. So, I'm not going to complain because St. Pauli did win this game 3-2. They were the better side through almost the entire game, though they did have their adversity. Blowing a 2-0 lead and seeing Greuther Firth be the better side after they had levelled. But they fought back and eventually won, which should be a great confidence boost after their cup exit. If they had lost this game on the back of losing that cup game to Fortuna Dusseldorf, I think the mood around St. Pauli right now would have been very negative. I think the mood on this podcast would have been extremely negative. But they did win. They showed that fight back ability that any side need if they want to get promoted. For Groot Firth, it's a first loss in 10. So it's not the end of the world for them, but they have slipped out of the top two as a result of this game. Before we do move on, it would be wrong of me to not talk about the other notable moments in this match, which was immediately in the aftermath of the first goal. There was a firecracker launched from the St. Pauli end, and it landed near the St. Pauli sideline, and it seemed to hurt one of the members of staff, which obviously we do not want to see. I, I don't think that is what the guy was trying to do, though obviously it probably shouldn't need to be said to anyone that you shouldn't be launching firecrackers in the vicinity of people. It's not a good idea, and it's not a good idea to bring firecrackers to a game and just throw them onto the pitch anyway. So, yeah, he was apprehended. He was taken out of the stadium by security, and that was obviously the right thing to do. Moving on to a game with plenty of fireworks. Paderborn 4, Fortuna Dusseldorf 3. This was 
quite the surprising game, I think it's fair to say. I didn't see seven goals coming in this game. I didn't see four of them coming from Paderborn. But that's what happened. Dusseldorf did not get off to the most ideal start in the sense that they were 3-0 down at half-time. David King Zombie getting his first goal for the club since joining from Sandhausen this summer. There was some controversy with this goal because Daniel Thielen was complaining about an offside in the build-up, but it seemed marginal, and VAR confirmed the goal anyway. I think he was given a yellow card for his protests too. Matez Hansen and Philip Bulbia would get the others for Paderborn. Dusseldorf's defending for all three of them goals, far too passive. It was really bad. It's not what we expect from a side of the quality of Fortuna Dusseldorf, to be honest. And whilst Fortuna's defence was not playing well, their attack was also really not playing well. It must have been incredibly frustrating for Fortuna fans to watch this game. They had one of the best chances any team has had all season. They broke on the counter following a corner. And Paderborn keeper Pele Bovink rushed out to the point where he was closer to the halfway line than he was to his own net. He was in absolute no-man's land, and I have no idea why he felt the need to do that. It was really stupid from him. But Jona Nemec got too excited. He played a weak shot that went wide of the goal. Now, at the point he shot, there were three other Dusseldorf attackers up with him, and bar Bovink, who, like I said, was miles out of his goal, there was only one other Paderborn defender, so really that should be resulting in a goal at least 10 times out of 10, minimum. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, don't know, I don't know what he was thinking. His decision-making was bad, and really they should have been scoring from that. I will say for him that if he had, you know, tried to pass to one of his teammates to get a better shot and he'd fluffed his lines there then maybe we're all sat here going well he should have just shot because the goalkeeper's miles out but yeah execution not fantastic for Fortuna Dusseldorf in this game so obviously going in 3-0 down at the halftime break Dusseldorf did have to do something and something they did because they would score two goals in the opening 10 minutes of the second half thanks to Yannick Engelhart and Marlon Mustafa getting a goal on his debut. They should have had another as well because that miss in the first half was bad. Their miss early on in the second half was in my mind even worse. Once again Pele Bovink found himself in absolute no man's land. He seems far too eager to leave his goal and try and contribute. He thinks he's Manuel Neuer, but there was an attack down the Dusseldorf right hand side, and Bovink decided to leave his net to try and chase down this player who was closer to the corner flag than to the goal and this meant that this player was able to play a perfect ball into the middle of the box for Christoph Daffner and all he had to do was tap it into an open goal and he missed. This is so much worse than the Tim Kleindeans to miss as well. This was absolutely beyond explanation. Any player who is good enough to be in this fight to Bundesliga should be able to score on an open goal. Bearing in mind he was only standing like slightly outside the six yard box. And yet he still missed. And he was standing like in the middle of the net as well. I don't get it. I absolutely do not get it. It was one of the most painful misses I've seen so far this season. 
So that meant the score was 3-2 at that point and Paderborn would get their fourth in the 82nd minute. Cohen Costons with his first since joining the club from Maastricht in the January window. Dennis Yastremski, almost certainly pronounced his name wrong, would score quite a good curling finish in the 90th minute and there were seven minutes added on after that but Dusseldorf were never able to get a fourth and... It leaves us thinking about what would have happened if Dusseldorf had just been able to take their really, really easy chances. Would they have... If, if that game had gone to 3 all, would they have been able to push on and get the winner, get the fourth before Paderborn got their fourth? I don't know, but it feels like their wasted chances were really the difference between them winning and losing this game. Also, of course, like I said, the three goals in the first half in particular... For Paderborn, the passiveness of Dusseldorf's defending was terrible and it does leave a lot of questions about their back line. Apart from that, Paderborn did take their chances. They were more clinical than Dusseldorf and that's why many will say they deserved to win this game. One thing that I did see that seemingly hasn't been picked up by a lot of of newspapers and publications, Lucas Kwasniok was very irate at the end of the game with the officiating crew, and it's weird to see a manager complaining after his side has won, even if they're not happy with the refereeing performance, they want to congratulate the players, celebrate with the fans, and so complaining of the officials normally isn't the first thing on their mind. The only thing I've been able to find about this, Kwasniok apparently said after the game, Quote, it's a complete waste of time for the fourth official to get paid somehow. He pays attention to things and interprets mistakes into them. And then he said, quote, apparently I got too excited with my cappy about a decision, probably in his direction. Congratulations to him and keep it up. And I'll be honest, none of that makes sense. That might just be Google Translate, <laughs> but I, 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 I don't know. I thought you'd want to know. But overall, both sides are still in the promotion hunt, both on 31 points, meaning they are both just five points behind the side in third. Schalke 1, Eintracht Braunschweig 0. It is the second week in a row where I have written an article about why a side are in trouble, only for them to rebound and win at the weekend. So, obviously, the side who I write about next week are going to inevitably win their game. The only goal in this match coming from Keenan Kaverman. Schalke should have scored sooner than the 61st minute, but they struggled in their build-up to break down a fairly stubborn Eintracht Braunschweig defence. Still, give credit to Esnel Fia for beating an informed side. The celebrations from the 61,000-strong crowd showed how much the entire team needed this. Obviously, Schalke get a level of support that most, well, all second-tier sides around the world would envy, and it shows just how fantastic their fans are, despite all of the troubles they've been having on and off the pitch. They still show up, they still support the side. Think of all of the other teams in the second tier most of them with big stadiums are also half empty stadiums maybe with the exception of hsv as well but yes yeah, schalke packing out that stadium every week is truly admirable it is worth noting as well that marius muller had a good game in goals last week we talked about how 
Karol Goretzka decided to replace Ralph Farman with him. He played well. Darko Chirlinov also playing well as well since joining the club again from Burnley. And also worth mentioning that Devi Merkin saved an almost certain goal in the first half when he cleared a ground cross that would have led to an open goal tap-in without his interference. So Schalke getting a very vital win that will hopefully help turn the mood around at the club. Obviously, it's going to take more than one win, though this is a step in the right direction. For Van Trapp-Braunschweig, a bad performance, but I'm sure they'll continue to be better than they were at the beginning of the season. Nuremberg 2, Osnabrück 2. Obviously, we often in football talk about the idea of a game of two halves, while this was a game of the same half twice. Because in both halves, Chan Azun would score, continuing his amazing season so far. Really good solo effort in the first half. He then scored very early on in the second half as well. It's two doubles for him in his last three games. But both times after taking the lead, Nuremberg were quite passive. They didn't try to build on that advantage. They just sort of sat back, which is weird when you're taking on a side who, being generous aren't particularly great and Osterbrook would fight back and equalise both times. Eric Engelhart equalising the first time at the end of the first half and then in the second half, the 93rd minute, quasi Okieve right would turn in a deflection from Carl Klaus. It is worth saying that Nuremberg did have a very good chance to win the game after Osnabrück's second equaliser. But credit to Christian Conte, who cleared a Lucas Slimer shot off the line. He saved a point for Osnabrück there, most certainly. But this, for me, is a lesson about what teams should do when they go a goal up. We often say incorrectly that a two-goal lead is the most dangerous in football. Obviously, a one-goal lead is. And what was particularly surprising here was that when they did get their one-goal lead, Nuremberg, despite playing at home and being the better side, I think we'd all say that Nuremberg, on paper, are a way better side than Osnabrück, decided to sit back. They didn't want to attack. They didn't want to try and get a two-goal lead. And they did pay the price for that. For Osnabrück, we're stuck in the same position again of saying that a draw isn't good enough, considering that they were the better side through most of this game. They should have been picking up all three points. But then again, they were only the better side through most of the game because Nuremberg didn't seem interested in actually trying to win and stuff. So, very confusing. But when they've had chances against Paderborn last week and against Nuremberg this week, they really need to be picking up more than two points in those two games. But considering that Rikoshinat has also only lost two of his six games in charge with the four being draws, they are at least playing better than they were under Tobias Schweinsteig. However, it is now 13 winless for Osnabrück, and if they don't start picking up wins soon, they will have absolutely no chance of staying up this season. Karlsruhe 2, Vehen 2, it's now 8 undefeated for Karlsruhe in the league, though there are a lot of questions to ask after this game. But Uziv Divadze opened the scoring with the only goal of the first half, 
how a Philip Heisk round cross was able to get all the way across the box for him to have what was essentially an open goal tapping is beyond me. But that was how they scored. A frantic opening to the second half though would see the score go to one all and 2-1 quite quickly. Ivan Patagin would tap in a Patrick Duez spill before Igor Matanovic continued his recent purple patch 4-4 for him or 5 in 6 if you want to extend that range out a bit. The Patagin goal came in the 48th minute, the Matanovic goal coming in the 53rd minute, so one all at half time, 2-1 just 8 minutes into the second half. But again, Patagin would level the scores later on in the 74th minute. This time for the final time, once again, benefiting from a Patrick Druez spill. And we really should probably talk about Druez because he had a bad game in this one. Kind of like with Bouchert in the DFB Pacal. He made two vital mistakes that led to two goals for Vahen. And without them, Karlsruhe would probably go on to win the game. Because there were long periods where Karlsruhe were comfortably the better side. But when you're going up against a Svita Bundesliga side, and Vahen have been a good side in the Svita Bundesliga so far this season, you cannot be making the mistakes that Patrick Druez made. And of course, unlike Sasha Berchert, he didn't have a penalty shootout to try and make up for his errors as well. So, Karlsruhe will be kicking themselves because they really should have picked up all three points in this game, but you can't make mistakes like the ones the goalkeeper did at this level. Hertha 1, HSV 2. Now, I don't want to undermine HSV's performance in this game. Another big win for them. One that sees them move up to second in the table, but this game will be more remembered for the 32-minute interruption. Obviously, we've not addressed this so far in the podcast, but the protests against the DFL investor have been going on still. Of course they have, because it's a truly terrible idea that the DFL really shouldn't be going along with and the fact that they still haven't quite got the message is deeply frustrating but anyway this game delayed for 32 minutes because Hertha fans threw tennis balls onto the pitch they weren't the only one who did that a few other teams did that as well because apparently the chocolate hasn't been a big enough message so let's move up to tennis balls and the game was nearly called off as a result it probably for Hertha fans would have been the best if it was because Hertha's performance in this game not particularly good, HSV did serve a win, but my favourite two parts of the 32-minute delay, there was an announcement over the intercom, trying to get the Hertha fans to stop, and the announcement said, your message has arrived, <laughs> which was basically their way of saying, look, we get it, can we just play football now? That didn't work. Neither did Paul Dardai going over to the Earth curve and asking very nicely. He, he walked over and went, guys, we just want to play football. Can you stop? And they went, nah. Anyway, Miro Muheim would score the opening goal for HSV with a deflected shot. That and a Ludovic Rice goal sandwiched a Harris Tabakovic goal for Hertha Berlin. Like I said, though, HSV were the better side. And they move up into the promotion places as a result. Obviously, we talked... Before the winter break about the fact that HSV's away form was terrible and their home form was really good. So getting a win on the road could be important in more than one way. Alversberg 2, Kaiserslautern 1. Now you might remember that in the 1995-96 season, Kaiserslautern did the unthinkable. They won the DFB Pokal 
and got relegated from the Bundesliga in the same season. And that was the sort of foundation for them remarkably winning the Bundesliga at the first attempt a few years later. But it looks like Kaiserslautern are attempting to replicate that season once again because they went through in the Pokal to the semi-finals. They could have a Svite Bundesliga side to get through to the final, but at the same time, they're looking like they could get relegated from the Svite Bundesliga. Paul Vanner opening the scoring in this game against the Runner play with quite a good finish. Ragnar Acher would equalise in the eighth minute of first half at a time with an amazing dipping shot from outside the box. And whilst Kaiserslautern had been the better side through the first half, they were the better side through the second half as well. But Elversberg did have another great chance against Vona play when Almami Torre would give away a penalty with a handball. Thor Jakobsen would score from the spot and that would be enough for all three points despite Kaiserslautern being the better side through most of the game. And this was something that Dimitrios Grimosi sort of addressed in his press conference after the game. He said that he was happy with the performance. He thought Kaiserslautern were the better side and that it was just those two unfortunate moments against the play that cost his side a chance of victory. And that, for me, was true. Kaiserslautern were the better side. They would have won on most days. But the magic of the former Tebby Berlin legend Paul Vanner and <laughs> A Thousand Hours podcast and... The penalty in the second half cost his side of a chance of victory. Not happy with just beating Kaiserslautern, apparently the Alversberg advertising board also wanted to attack the players because it fell on Marlon Litter whilst he was giving his post-game interview, so that was quite funny. And over to Hansa Vostok 1, a really fast start for Hansa in this game when striker Kevin Schumacher put the ball in the back of the net after four minutes. There was one small problem with it, and it, it's only a tiny problem, not really something we need to talk about, but I'll, I'll bring it up anyway. He, he did put it in his own net, which apparently does matter. Another Hansa striker would score in first half at a time, but luckily this time Kai Proga actually put it in the right net, and that made it one all at the half-time break. The goal for Hansa from Kai Proger was actually much worse from a defensive perspective than the own goal earlier on because there was a back pass played to Ron Robert Zieler and he could see that Kai Proger was bearing down on him. So what he decided to do in an act of utter genius was play it straight to him. Could have could have cleared it in any direction, could have kicked it out for a corner, could have kicked it out for a throw-in, could have kicked it just down the pitch away from where Kai Proger was, but no, no, he decided to pass it straight to Kai Proger. Well done. So, yeah, that wasn't great. Maybe he thought that Kai Proger was a ghost and that he could just kick the ball straight through him, but it turns out Kai Proger isn't a ghost. So, just a note for the future, if you are a Svite Bundesliga player, you're taking on Hansa Rostock, Kai Proger, not a ghost. <laughs> Really not where I thought this podcast would go. But anyway, Marcel Halstenberg would be the main figure of the second half. Hanover did start playing with more intensity towards the end of the game. And he would head home in the 78th minute before being sent off 11 minutes later. Despite that, and despite some good hands of chances, they weren't able to get an equaliser. And I think the pinnacle of Hans's futile attempts to get an equaliser in this game very late on... Sebastian Kolker had gone up the goalkeeper. They tried to get a chance from a corner and there was a potential handball 
from that set piece. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a penalty in a million billion years. But all of the Hansa players, bar Sebastian Kolka, were running up to the ref, appealing to him, when they should have just been, you know, trying to score. And it's really weird, because you, you get this shot of five, six, seven Hansa players surrounding the referee whilst the ball is still in play, with Sebastian Kolka, the goalkeeper, on the ball near the byline, trying to actually manufacture a chance and not being able to do anything because half of his team are appealing to the referee. So that was truly terrible and Hansa Rostock continuing to struggle through this season as well. Currently sat in 16th place, level on points, with 17th place Eintracht Braunschweig. Final game to mention then, Magdeburg 1, Holstein Kiel 1. Should I have put this last in running order? Probably not. But when I compiled running order for the Swiss Liga, I was very tired. And yeah, put Kiel last. Obviously, it's not been the best start to 2024 for Holstein Kiel. Just one point from their opening three games. And it is a total that has seen them drop from top of the league to third place. They did take the lead in the first half. A scrap from a free kick ended with Timo Becker slotting in. If he hadn't scored, it might have been a penalty for handball from John Huguenet anyway. Magdeburg were dominant in the second half and they did have a chance to equalise in the 55th minute. Marco Comenda with a handball giving Magdeburg a penalty, but Lucas Danios would see his shot saved by Kiel's Timon Weiner. Should be stressed, after this game, Lucas Danios said that he got a lot of racist abuse online, which obviously is completely unacceptable. I hope that Magdeburg are able to find the people who are responsible for this and ban them from the club for life. The hosts kept pushing though and would eventually get their reward in the 95th minute, Amir Kahinja scoring on his debut in professional football. Absolutely fantastic for him. Marcel Vap said the draw was deserved and that Kiel didn't do enough to win. However, I would say they were incredibly lucky to even draw despite the fact that Magdeburg's only goal of the game came in the 95th minute. They should have been scoring before that. They had plenty of chances to do so but just weren't able to. Hopefully, for Kiel's sake, this is just a rough patch because I think we'd all like to see them in the Bundesliga to do what Heidenheim did last year would be great. Maybe not winning the league because we all want to see St. Pauli win the league instead. But there's a lot to fix for Holstein Kiel. And yeah, I think they were much closer to losing this game than winning despite the fact that Magdeburg's goal came so late on. Anyway, with all of that, let's have a look at the Sveitsbundsliga table. After 20 games, St. Pauli leading the way on 42 points. They're now five points clear of the side in second place. That is HSV on 37. Holstein Kiel with their bad run of form recently fall to third there on 36 points. And then Greuther Firth are in fourth on 35 points. I kind of like if you wanted to say that in, well, part English, part German, you could say fourth, fifth, from from Dreisig. So, 4th, 5th, 4th. Fantastic. Anyway, 5th are Dusseldorf on 31 points. That's the same number of points that Hanover have in 6th and Paderborn have in 7th. At the wrong end of the table, Osnabrück on 11 points. They've closed the gap to the other two sides in the relegation places, but only by one. They're still 9 points behind Eintracht Braunschweig on 20, which is the same number of points that Hans Vostok have in 16th place. It's been a one-point jump to Kaiserslautern. Not really a jump, is it? On 21 points. Schalke in 14th on 23, and then Magdeburg in 13th on 24 points. 
Player of the week in the Spider Bundesliga. Sometimes it's really hard to pick players, particularly if one side's had a good game and two players are kind of equally responsible for the success. And I did narrow it down to two St. Pauli players. Credit to Chanazuno, I think, comes in a close third place to them. But I narrowed it down to Elias Saad and Kemline. Because Sad scored two goals, Kemline assisted two goals, both of them were exceptional. But I think in the end, I just gave it to Elias Sad. He did get a bit of help with the first goal with regards to Jonas Erbig spilling the ball into his path. But you've got to be in the right place to be able to take those chances. And his two goals were the difference between St. Pauli winning and losing the top of the table clash against Greuther Firth. Okay, it is now time to go into the Dritter League for match day 24 of the season. Jan Regensburg are now 12 points clear of third place. They beat Duisburg 1-0 this weekend thanks to an Elias Hoof goal. They're now also six clear of Dinamo Dresden after they lost their third game in four 2-1 to an Ingolstadt side who are up to fourth. Whilst we're on the topic of Dinamo Dresden, we do unfortunately have to talk about something else. The DFB have announced that they are launching an investigation into Dinamo Dresden's fans because they held up a banner during the game that said there is only one ridiculous DFB and two genders, which again is making a completely incorrect claim about genders. We've known for a very long time now that there are more than two genders. We know that gender is different to sex, or at least those of us who have functioning brains know that. This isn't the first time we've talked about this on the podcast because Bayer Leverkusen's fans did a similar thing against Werder Bremen. The club were fined €18,000 for that. It is worth noting a key difference, which is that Bayer Leverkusen, the club, came out and immediately condemned the banners. Meanwhile, Dinamo Dresden have been radio silent since these banners were raised. So hopefully they get a greater punishment for this because at least with Bayer Leverkusen you can claim the club were doing their best to try and stop these banners in the future. Meanwhile, Dinamo Dresden don't seem to be too fussed. So yeah, again, brain dead fans who do not understand the world that they live in, do not understand science and do not understand logic. And the idea of protesting the DFB by mentioning genders as well is just incredibly dumb but anyway if there's one thing that you can take from this podcast dear listener is that you are definitely smarter than the knuckle dragging idiots who put stuff like this up and unfortunately i do have to cut in from the editing bay because dresden have since released a statement and whatever you think the dumbest possible response to this scandal could be It is 20 times dumber than that. And I just want to say before I read this, it is verbatim. It's word for word because I don't want you to think I'm manipulating what they're saying. No, they genuinely are this stupid. Quote, we assess the banner campaigns as an expression and part of the protest of our active fan scene against a possible investor entry into the DFL with critical reference to the punishment that Bayer Nolfia Leverkusen recently received for their supporters' banners with similar slogans. The polarising one, the choice of words, is primarily a stylistic device to generate attention. 
So there are obviously a few problems with that. The idea that using deliberately insulting language can be viewed as a stylistic device is just wrong. If you say something that's highly racist, highly sexist, highly homophobic, you're not allowed to just say, oh, well, it's a stylistic device to generate attention. And also, if this works off the idea that there is no publicity that's bad publicity, then that is also very, very wrong. You can claim that you don't actually care about the words you're using, but it still has the same effect on the non-binary community. And like I said earlier, you can't just make wildly offensive comments about any sort of group of people based on any sort of identity or trait and then just claim that you weren't actually trying to be offensive, you were just trying to make a point about football because it still delivers the same result at the end of the day. And another thing that was notable was that they mentioned Bayer Leverkusen and the banners that they brought up and the fine that they got from the DFL, but the thing is, Bayer Leverkusen actually did condemn those banners. They said that they were abhorrent. They said that they wanted to make sure that no other banners like that went up again. So, do not try and claim that Bayer Leverkusen are in the same boat or on your side, because they clearly are not. This is awful for so many reasons, and once again, you get to feel good, dear listener, because you are not the knuckle-dragging idiots who put together this statement. Back to the podcast. Moving back to the world of football, Ulm couldn't capitalise on Dresden's result for the second week in a row, drawing one all with a Lubeck side in the relegation places. The gap between Ulm and fourth place Ingolstadt is now two points. Essen are up to fifth after a thrilling 4-3 win against bottom of the table Freiburg Schwei. The side were 3-2 down in the 88th minute, but an 89th minute goal from Niels Kaiser and a 91st minute penalty from Musa Dumboya won the game for the promotion contest. Tenders. Sandhausen, meanwhile, fall from third to sixth because of their second draw in a row, one all with Hallershare, where they dropped points thanks to a 91st minute penalty from Jonas Neatfeld. Apparently, 91st minute penalties were a bit of a thing in the Dritter League this week. Bull in seventh are also moving backwards thanks to a 1 0 defeat to Unterhashing. At the wrong end of the table, how close they were. Freiburg's fine, now winless in 14 after blowing that 3-2 lead against Essen. Duisburg is still second last with no win in four. Lubeck still third last and Waldorf Mannheim are still in the relegation places despite rescuing a late point at home to Prussian Munster thanks to a Marcel Siegert goal that made it to all. Just one point clear of the drop are Armenia Bielefeld. They lost their fifth game in a row 2-0 against Victoria Köln. It would be... Devastating if they were relegated for a third year in a row. As mentioned, my sister's dog supports them as well. So, you know, it'd be really upsetting for him. 1860 Munich, meanwhile, are only two clear of the drop after a third draw in a row against Ezra G. Ow, that was nil-nil. Anyway, it's time to end the podcast then with Topsfield Das Wochenender und Das Woche. We have games in midweek once again. The two DFB Pakal fixtures, the most exciting of which, Actually, they're both really exciting, so I shouldn't say that. But 
The clash of the Titans is on Tuesday night. Bayer Leverkusen against Stuttgart. That is an 8.45pm kickoff Central European time. If you're in the UK, knock off one hour. And remember as well, if you're in the UK, they're not paying me to say this, but I'm going to keep saying it anyway. Remember to go to DFB Play where you can watch the match for free with English language commentary as well. So there is no better way to spend a Tuesday night. Maybe watching Great British Menu, but not really. On Wednesday night, it is a David versus Goliath matchup. Saarbrücken have beaten Bayern Munich and Eintracht Frankfurt. Can they now beat Borussia Mönchengladbach? They are at home once again, so it is going to be a challenge for Gerardo Seoane and company. That is a kickoff at the same time as well, quarter to nine if you're in Europe and quarter to eight if you are in the UK. Before that, there is a Bundesliga game, the rescheduled match between Mainz and Union Berlin. That is a 6.30pm kickoff Central European time, 5.30pm if you're in the UK. Obviously, the two sides both fighting against the drop, so this is a massive game for both. Hopefully, Mainz can actually, you know, try and score because I'm getting very fed up of saying, well, they had more chances, but they couldn't take any of them. Anyway, <laughs> I do want Union Berlin to win, though, because I've been to the ground, and obviously, we all love Union Berlin. But let's go into the games from the weekend, starting off with the Bundesliga. I, I don't want to pick this because I know the game is more likely than not going to disappoint me. But my Bundesliga game of the weekend is Bayer Leverkusen against Bayern Munich, Saturday, 8.30pm kickoff. And we're in the same place this week with the Bundesliga as we were with the Spider Bundesliga last week. It's first versus second. Obviously, if Bayer Leverkusen actually win this game, then that will be a massive boost to their title credentials. And if Bayern Munich win this game, then we will all be sad. Meanwhile, in the Spider Bundesliga, my game of the weekend, HSV against Hanover. It is a Friday 6.30pm kickoff. If Hanover want to show that they are promotion contenders this year, then a win away at HSV, where they have been so good at home, will be a massive boost in that regard. They are currently five points behind Holstein Kiel in third place and six behind HSV in second. So this would be, as I just said, a massive boost to their promotion credentials. Meanwhile, HSV wanting to hopefully distance themselves, well, hopefully for them, distance themselves from Greutherford, Holstein Kiel and all of the other chasing pack whilst closing the gap down to St. Pauli. In the Dritter Liga, my game of the weekend is Jan Regensburg against Rottweiss Essen. That is a Saturday 2 o'clock kickoff. For Jan Regensburg, the last two weeks have been fantastic for them as they have seen the gap between themselves, second and third, start to open up their six points clear of Dinamo Dresden, 11 points clear of Ulm. And obviously a win against Rottweiss Essen will potentially allow them to open that gap up further. For Essen, they're only two points behind Ulm in third place. And a win here would be a real statement of intent because Jan Regensburg have been very hard to beat this year. Just two defeats in 24 games. Anyway, with all that said, that's all the time we have on the Going Dutch podcast this week. You know, I mentioned a while ago now that the average podcast episode is around about 30 minutes long. So you really are getting value for money with these podcasts. I do appreciate that they are very long, but I want to cover all three leagues. I want to cover, well, two of them in depth. And if you do listen to this podcast week in, week out, and you do listen to every minute of every episode, then Wow, even I am shocked 
by that but i do thank you so much for doing so this is quite a time intensive process for me from taking notes down to producing the episode to editing the episode and publishing it and um, the fact that other people do listen to it does make it feel a bit more worth it even though i do enjoy doing this anyway i don't know why i've decided to talk about that at the end of this episode but maybe it's just because the last two episodes in particular have been so long that i, I wanted to mention it now I should probably say that the next episode of the podcast is going to be delayed. It'll probably go up on Wednesday as opposed to Tuesday. The reason for that is the real game of the weekend in the world is the Super Bowl. The San Francisco 49ers and Kansas City Chiefs once again meeting up in the big game like they did in 2020 before everything went to hell. And... I think it's going to be a very exciting game. Obviously, I'm rooting for the San Francisco 49ers to win. When I did the NFL Blitz back in the day, I did have an unfortunate record of picking against the Kansas City Chiefs pretty often in the playoffs and then proving me wrong. And I don't know why I picked against the Chiefs as often as I did, but I found myself doing the same thing in the playoffs up until this point. So I think for the Super Bowl, just to give a prediction, because I've given a prediction now for many years... I am actually going to learn my lesson and I am picking the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. I've been proven wrong far too many times with regards to the Chiefs. I've been proven wrong far too many times with regards to the Super Bowl as well because I have a genuinely abysmal record of picking sides to win the Super Bowl. Despite the fact that I am good at picking games in the regular season, the Super Bowl just sort of throws me off for whatever reason. But yeah... I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I think the Super Bowl is the best single sporting event of the entire year, every year. And I do encourage you to watch it. If you've never watched American football before, it's a wonderful sport. And the Super Bowl is the best way to learn about the game. But anyway, I hope to see you next week on Wednesday following the Super Bowl. For the time being, I've been Alex Woodward, and until we meet again, let's go Niners, and I'll be the same.